you can always switch to advocacy once you feel like you actually understand. It's just that people tend to, I think, believe that they understand long before they actually understand. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast of The Decision Lab, a socially conscious applied research firm that uses behavioral science to improve outcomes for all of society. My name is Brooke Struck, Research Director at TDL, and I'll be your host for the discussion. My guest today is Julia Minson, Associate Professor of Public Policy at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about conflict in the workplace, the mindsets we bring to it, and how to disagree productively without being so disagreeable. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much for having me, Brooke. In cases of disagreement, you have differentiated between two things called an advocacy mindset and an inquiry mindset. What are these two things and how do they differ from each other? So the distinction is not mine originally. There have been folks writing about these questions for really a few decades now. Really, the idea is advocacy is wanting to convince somebody that you are right. It's the idea that you want to change their mind because you're right, they're wrong. Both people can't be right at the same time. So it's really a very competitive orientation because in the end, only one set of beliefs will be allowed to stand. Whereas an inquiry mindset or a learning mindset is a mindset of trying to understand what does the other person believe and why do they believe it? Obviously, these two things are different from each other. They're not mutually exclusive, but it's really thinking about different goals that a person could have in a conversation when they encounter somebody they disagree with. Can we dive into a meaty example of this? So let's think about a situation where I might walk into a meeting with a colleague and I'm bringing an advocacy mindset and how that might play out relative to an otherwise similar conversation where I walk in with an inquiry mindset and that conversation goes differently. The jumping off point for both of those types of conversations is disagreement. I observe the fact that I believe we should be doing X and you believe that we should be doing Y. And what often happens is people very automatically and very quickly explain the disagreement to themselves in their own mind. What is the cause of this disagreement? This is the psychological term is attribution making, right? So we attribute the disagreement to some set of causes. And quite often that set of causes that we come up with is the other person is wrong hear all the reasons why their perspective makes no sense, why their approach to the project will fail, why the way they did the budget is incorrect. The advocacy mindset is you walk in, you know all these things in your head to be true. And so you try to explain to the other person why exactly they're wrong and how they should change their behavior. And of course, if this person happens to be another professional who knows what they're doing, they don't think they're wrong. And so it feels to some extent disrespectful, right? Like, why are you telling me how to do my job? And so that person is likely to push back and say, well, no, here's why I'm doing it. And here's why you're wrong. It becomes this sort of back and forth where the underlying assumption is, I know why you're disagreeing with me and your reasons are wrong. The inquiry mindset approach is, I know you're disagreeing with me, but I don't understand why you're disagreeing with me. One possibility is that you know something I don't know. You have a different set of facts or you have a different set of priorities or you have a different perspective. So I'm going to try to understand what it is I don't know about the problem. Because if there's something that I don't know that I could learn from you, that's incredibly valuable and I want to garner that value. 
So then you walk in with saying, look, I noticed that you are proposing doing it this other way. That's not how I've ever thought about it. Tell me more about why you're thinking about it this way. You're not coming from an assumption that they're thinking about it that way because they're wrong. You're coming from an assumption that you don't understand why they're thinking about it that way and you're going to find out. And so, of course, that leads to a very different response. If I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like there's a really far upstream cause of this difference, right? These two paths that we might walk. So you talked about this attribution at the very beginning. When you first encounter somebody who holds a different belief from you, you can either start to try to hypothesize about why that might be the case and start to identify all the reasons that you think that they have for holding the belief that they hold and starting to write down all those reasons that you're sure that those things are completely wrong. Or you can say, there's another person who has a lot of experience and a lot of skills and access to a lot of information, quite like me, and they reached a different conclusion than I did. That's odd. And just pausing at that moment of that's odd seems to be a really important differentiator here between which of those paths you're going to go down. If you think to yourself, that's odd, and you pause there for a moment, then it opens up this curiosity, this learning mindset, this inquiry mindset. I wonder why that's the case. Rather than bypassing that short stopover at that's odd and just jumping right into, well, I'm sure I can figure out why this person holds the beliefs that they hold. And I'm also sure that I can discount or exclude all of the reasons that they're going to bring to the table for holding that position, which is opposed to my own. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the thing that I always find really interesting is that on one hand, what you and I are talking about right now is pretty commonsensical. If you think about two guys named Bob and Joe who disagree, you are sort of as a third party observer saying who is right and who is wrong, Bob or Joe. You immediately recognize that you don't know because they're just sort of two people, two different perspectives. And if they're kind of equally qualified, it could be either one. And these conclusions that we are coming to seem really commonsensical and almost obvious. The problem is that in the moment, people just sail right by that's odd moment, as you're calling it, because assuming that we know why the other person is doing the things they're doing is just so automatic. So when we do studies on this and we explicitly ask people about the reasons for their own beliefs and a disagreeing counterpart's beliefs, the differences are just staggering in the attributions that we make. So my own beliefs are always, well, because I've thought carefully about it and I've read the relevant research and I'm an ethical, considerate person that really minds both sides. And then if you ask for the reasons behind why the disagreeing person believes what they believe. They're not very informed and they've read too much biased media from their own side of the aisle and they don't care about other people and they're just in it for the money. And it happens so fast and the differences are just so big. So yeah, if other people disagree with me, it must be because they're either incompetent or evil or misinformed, perhaps. So clearly, that's a winning strategy. If you go into the conversation believing that your counterpart is some mixture of evil, incompetent, and misinformed, like that conversation for sure is going to go well. What makes the inquiry mindset more effective than that more combative advocacy mindset where really you're just looking to convert your opponent to your point of view? 
Well, I think there's two big pieces. One is, you know, you can call psychological and one is informational. The psychological piece is the dawn of humanistic psychology. We've known that people love feeling hurt. People love feeling understood. It is just this magical like ointment you put on relationships. In our own research, we have seen a lot of evidence of that. When people feel like you're really engaging with their perspective and trying to understand where they're coming from, it makes a huge difference in how they respond to you and the same exact argument. They just think that you are a more reasonable, more thoughtful, more trustworthy, better human being if you made them feel heard. So that's the psychological piece. The informational piece is that there are a really good possibility that they actually do know something that you don't know. Irrespective of how they feel about you, you want to know the information in their heads. Why is it that they form this belief or this opinion? Because once you know it sort of from their own perspective, then you could say, well, look, no, I think you've been reading some fake news and I just don't agree. Or it turns out that they actually have legitimate evidence that you should consider you know, in your decision-making going forward and wouldn't new information be wonderful? In my initial question, I asked you which one is more effective. In your answer, it seems like you clarified two things and those are a response to effective at what? There's the psychological aspect, which is like effective at reaching agreement and some peaceful resolution to the conversation. But then there's also that informational component, which is getting closer to the right answer, but not necessarily to your answer. These two approaches to conversation, they're mutually exclusive if you start with persuasion. If you start with persuasion, it is hard to then backpedal and say, oh, hold on a second. Let me hear your point of view, right? Now that I've lectured you, let me actually hear your point of view. If you go in the other order, if you start with help me understand where you're coming from, and then once you feel like you understand it, You can, and perhaps you should say, well, you know, here's my point of view and here's why I think my evidence is better and my plan is stronger and whatever it is you want to advocate for. You can always switch to advocacy once you feel like you actually understand. It's just that people tend to, I think, believe that they understand long before they actually understand. And then secondly, I think there's this funny wrinkle to it where People think that asking questions and demonstrating a willingness to learn somehow implies that their own beliefs are weak, that they themselves are open to persuasion. And so there's this sense in which like, well, I don't want to give them the platform to like pontificate on their crazy. I'm going to smack this bad idea down right away that it doesn't get sort of any more oxygen. I feel like there's sort of this urgency to persuasion. Like, oh, I better convince them before they say too many more words. I think that's a mistake. Let's pivot now a little bit. So thinking about my own experience, I go into every conversation with an open mind. I'm willing to negotiate and to give and take and to hear perspectives. The problem isn't me. It's all of those dogmatic idealists that I talk to. It's the other people in the meeting. They're the problem. Isn't that right? 
Yeah. So it turns out that you're not alone. One of the papers that we have recently written, so this is work with uh, Hannah Collins, who is a graduate student at HBS, who's the lead author, and uh, Charlie Dorison and Francesca Gino. One of the things that we've been interested in is that these ideas about inquiry and advocacy mindsets have been out there for a long time, but there really has not been any empirical research. To what extent do people engage in inquiry or advocacy, right? We did some studies a couple of years ago where we asked people about conversations they have around disagreement and the goals that they have going in. So do they have these inquiry learning goals or do they have more of these like persuasion-y advocacy goals? And interestingly, we found exactly what you suggest, which is that people think that they're going in with a mix of the two. Well, of course I'm right, so I want to persuade, but I'm also an open-minded person, so I want to learn. What they believe about their counterparts, though, is that their counterparts are not at all interested in learning about them. And it's this sort of like very robust difference. We've asked people the same question in a variety of different ways. We've asked them about conversations around politics. We've asked them about, imagine you're talking to somebody who's a fan of a different sports team than you are, you know, in these totally different contexts people tend to believe that the other side is less interested in learning about their perspective than they themselves are. The problem is not that I'm intentionally going in with a closed mind. In fact, I believe that I'm going in with this nice mix of like, I've got information, it's valuable, I have a perspective that other people should listen to, but I'm also going to be receptive to what other people have to say. That's how I feel about the way that I'm going into various conversations. Rather, it's my idea about the other person in the conversation that's problematic. I believe that they're only there to persuade, they're not interested in learning, they're not interested in listening. How does that lead me to behave when I don't think that the other person sitting across from me at the table has an open mind? I think there's two pieces to it. I think when you go in with these good intentions, it's hard to execute on them. And part of the reason it's hard to execute on them is when you think that the other person does not have an open mind and they are out to persuade you, that is what creates this feeling of urgency. This person is going to interrupt me in 10 seconds. So I better get all my arguments out really, really fast. That sense of they are not trying to understand. So I'm going to be as fast and direct and as strong in my arguments as I possibly can in order to get through to them, of course, is then self-defeating because what we see as being clear and presenting sort of powerful arguments, people see as, our counterparts see as sort of very abrasive and condescending, right? So it creates sort of this negative, it creates this negative spiral and this like rush to persuade. And then at some point you're like, well, you know, at some point I'm going to listen to them and I'm open-minded. If they have anything worthwhile to say, I will definitely be open to it. But there's this big qualification to it. Hannah Collins and I are running follow-up studies right now where we are trying to get people to express their willingness to learn. And so what we've done is you go online and recruit research participants and you say, can you write an argument for another person about why your perspective on this particular issue is correct? And they write sort of a persuasive paragraph about whatever it is. On the next page of the survey, we say, research has shown that demonstrating a willingness to learn makes things go much better. So here's your paragraph. Can you rewrite it now 
so that it demonstrates a willingness to learn. So that when we send it to this other person, they read it and they say, yes, this person is indeed willing to learn about my point of view. And what people do is they take their original paragraph and then they say, there's this one piece of this that I might be wrong about. So if you have any evidence of that, I would be open to hearing it. And it's like this grudging afterthought, you know what I mean? Instead of saying, look, I understand that people have different perspectives and I would be really interested in hearing what you think and here's my beliefs, but please tell me what I might be getting wrong. It's a paragraph of arguments with an afterthought of like, in this tiny little limited area, there's a small chance that I might not know everything. (laughs) And if you know something that is of value, now is your opening. Here's your tiny window in which you're allowed to talk. It sounds like what you're starting to develop, there are some exercises that help me to change my views about the mindset or the attitude of the person who's sitting across the table from me. Let's just back up one step. Given that I already think I'm going in with this open-minded idea and that I have you know, this idea in mind as well, that my interlocutor or my opponent is coming in with a very closed mind, that they're really there just to like get their arguments out on the table to persuade me and to walk away, changing my beliefs about myself isn't really going to help. The problem is not necessarily my belief about myself. The problem is my belief about the person sitting across the table from me and the mirror image of that, the other person sitting across the table from me, their beliefs about me and my mindset. Let's start with my beliefs about them. If I just sit down and ask a bunch of questions, won't they get the hint that like I'm open-minded and curious? Yeah, so that's pretty good. If you ask a bunch of questions, that's an excellent start. You probably want to be thoughtful about how you ask questions. The original terminology of inquiry and advocacy, right? The idea of advocacy comes from an advocate, like an attorney. Attorneys are famous for asking questions, but they're questions that are designed to make an argumentative point. People are very, very sort of good and sensitive to whether you're asking them questions because you are making an argument that happens to have a question mark at the end, or if you're demonstrating genuine curiosity. How could you possibly believe that is technically a question. What evidence do you have is technically a question. They both sound more confrontational than perhaps what you would want. Whereas if you say something like, I'm curious to learn about your perspective. It's a declarative statement, but it demonstrates curiosity. I would say a really important thing to check yourself on is your, are the words coming out of your mouth demonstrating genuine curiosity? What happens is when I'm thinking curious thoughts, my counterpart can't tell, right? Because my thoughts are in my head. The words that are coming out of my mouth are really the only signal that my counterpart has as to what's happening in my head. As the speaker, I'm aware of both of those things, right? I'm aware of my thoughts and I'm aware of my words, whereas my listener only has the words to work with. And so the implication of that is anything you want to express, you should express more and more strongly because sort of like in your own mind, it feels like there's a lot of curiosity happening, but your counterpart is only exposed to a small fraction of that, which is what you're expressing with your words. I would say if you're trying to 
convince your counterpart that you are genuinely interested in learning about them, you should do more than whatever it is you think you should do. (laughs) Right. So you talked about different types of questions. And two of the things that stood out to me are about scope and about the baseline assumption or the default. So the scope would be, I'm interested in your perspective. I wonder what it is that you're seeing that I'm not seeing. That's not even a question, but it's this very, very vast opening to invite someone, tell me what you need to tell me. So the scope there is very broad, as opposed to the example that you brought up earlier of here's, you know, an ironclad argument for 12 to 15 sentences in a row, like one dense paragraph, followed by this tiny question of like, well, in this tiny corner of this argument, there is perhaps an area where I have something of a blind spot. So that's the scope issue. And then the default or baseline assumption is another part that stood out to me, which is that tag at the end there, if you have something important or insightful to share, now's your moment. That already assumes that I don't expect that you do. It's unlikely. I'm subtly giving you this cue that it would be perfectly fine. And in fact, mostly agreeable to me if you said, no, I have nothing further to add, as opposed to that declarative sentence of like, I'm really interested in your perspective. I'm curious about how you arrived at the point that you did. The default there is like, well, you have to say something. I'm inviting you to say something. And in fact, I'm expecting it. If you were to say nothing there or to say to pass your turn in the conversation, that would be a very awkward break in the flow of the conversation. It wouldn't be clear where the conversation should continue on after that, as opposed to the first one where like the default is I'm expecting you to say nothing. And if indeed you did pass your turn in the conversation, we could just continue right along very happily. I would take that even further. I think another part of the default, if you will, is that people who are not, you know, people who might not be sort of super curious, but are trying to do the curiosity thing because they listen to a podcast and they learn that it's the right thing to do, might think of this as a one conversational turn sort of thing. I express my curiosity. I follow sort of the good advice of Brooke and Julia, and then I'm done. Whereas A lot of what I'm suggesting is very much in line with what professional mediators do. They have an approach that I really like. They call it the mediation triangle or the inquiry triangle. And so basically what you do is you say something like, I would really like to understand your perspective on this issue. And then the person talks and talks and talks and talks. And so asking the question is sort of part one of the triangle. And then you listen to their answer and you restate it. And you say, so let me get this straight. I think what you said is that a really important priority of this project is blah, 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 blah. Did I get that right? Tell me more. (laughs) And then you give them like a second chance at the same thing. You know, mediators will do this over and over again until the other person says, yeah, you got it. Like you got this right. Because it turns out that most of the time you don't get it right on the first try. But people do feel like they've done that like perfunctory thing of asking one open-ended question and now they're done. You mentioned earlier the importance of feeling heard, the almost magical effect that can be achieved when you manage to get someone to feel heard. And that's really what reopening the question achieves, right? It's like when you give someone that space, when you give them the wide scope and the default is like they have to pipe up What you achieve is that sense that like they've really had all the openings that they needed to get their point out on the table. And now that they feel heard, they're more willing to listen. Yes. And the other extra piece of this is when you reiterate what they said, 
you are behaviorally demonstrating that you actually did hear them. There's a lot of research on this idea of active listening. And active listening is made up of lots of different sort of pieces. There's sort of the nonverbals of like leaning forward and nodding and smiling at the right times and things like back channels, right? So things like aha and mm-hmm. you know, you're making noises, but they're not words. Verbal acknowledgement is a little bit different. Verbal acknowledgement is saying, okay, so it sounds to me blah, 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 blah. And you restate in your own words what the other person said. And that really requires a deeper level of engagement than nodding and smiling and saying, "Uh uh-huh. It's what behavioral biologists would call a true signal, a valid signal, because you can't fake it. You can't restate somebody's point of view effectively unless you've actually heard them. And again, it takes more time. You know, it's back to that question of sort of urgency and feeling like you have to convince them on the first salvo. Restating somebody's point of view is time consuming. And that's partly why it's so effective. Let's sum up. There's been a lot that we've covered there. So we were trying to address this question. What is it that we can do to help to signal effectively to the person sitting across the table from us that we are actually ready to listen. We talked about asking questions and we talked about open scoped questions as opposed to restrained scope questions. You know, really giving people lots of room to get their perspective out, not trying to box them into a tiny corner in a place in your argument that like actually you're kind of willing to cut ties with anyway if push comes to shove. And also framing those questions in such a way that the default is that they kind of have to answer. Maybe a a bit of a litmus test for that is if you were to write out your questions ahead of time, could you basically write out the entire conversation just from your perspective? If the answer to that question is yes, it's because it didn't require hearing anything from the other side. That probably means it's time to go back to the drawing board. You might be able to write out your opening remarks, but you need to be more receptive to the dynamics of the conversation and what you're going to learn during the conversation in order to be able to write the end of the script. You shouldn't be able to write the end of the script before even sitting down at the table. You talked also about body language and, you know, nodding and leaning forward, the mm mm-hmms and uh ahas. And we've been talking a lot, actually, about people sitting across the table from us. Even table placement, I would argue, is an important thing. The difference between sitting across the table from somebody and sitting side by side at a table with somebody is actually quite profound. And the way that we share information, if we have it written down, you know, the way that we invite somebody to look at things with us rather than turning it to face them and pushing it in their face. These are all very, very valuable cues. And there's a a point that you made about summarizing. I want to come back to that. But before I get to that, I wanted to mention patience. That was a message that has come out a couple of times throughout the course of our conversation. It takes more time. Something that follows from that realization is a bit of self-awareness as well. If you feel that you're in a hurry, that's a signal that you might not actually be as open to listening as you think you are, because really what you're looking to do is wrap things up. And so maybe that's just a little cue that you should be paying more attention to when you sit down at the table. What I want to come back to, though, is that summarizing and feeling heard. And I want to come back to that because it seems to me that that's a bridge between two things. What we had been talking about before is the set of tactics and practices that I can use to signal effectively to the person that I'm speaking to that I'm actually open to listening. And summarizing is really powerful in that respect. But it's also got a really effective impact on me because when I have to listen that actively and when I 
need to be taking enough notes to be able to summarize what it is that this person is saying, that's going to change my perspective on how I'm interacting with the other person. And that's really what I want to pivot to now. It's like now that we've closed off that loop of what I can do to more effectively signal to the other person, what are the things that I can do to hammer home to myself that actually the person I'm talking to is more open-minded and has more valuable information than I might initially expect if I just burned right past that moment of like, that's odd. I think that's a great point is sort of how do you convince yourself that this is valuable? And I think one of the key things there, right, is that conversations are dynamic and they're made up of sort of conversational turns so that the way you behave on the first turn is going to impact the way your counterpart behaves on the next turn. A lot of what we see in conflict is really sort of a matter of ignorance, right? It's a matter of not even giving the person that first turn to say their piece. It doesn't take very long for somebody to actually say, well, no, I actually completely sort of share your values and I understand where you're coming from, but here's my concern. And that's usually so surprising that it's almost like that's all it takes. You're like, you are a reasonable person. I think what you get from that first conversational turn that makes you recognize it is the person might actually say sort of valuable things, which is great. They're going to say it in a more reasonable and peaceful tone than what you perhaps expected because they are now emulating your reasonable and peaceful tone. And that it sets sort of this pace for the conversation because people tend to mimic each other's tone and style. Hopefully the sum of those things will make you go like, oh, this was bad as I expected it to be. Right. So setting the pace is a really important thing. So we talked about writing out that script. And is it possible for you to write out the entire script of the conversation before it even starts? The answer should be no. And you can force it to be no by creating these moments where the conversation is going to be forced into the unknown. You write out a question that provides that open-ended space for your interlocutor to bring something forward, and you don't know what that thing is going to be. The conversation, it goes off a cliff into this unknown territory, and it's like beyond that horizon, you just don't have any visibility ahead of time. Setting that pace early on, that I've created this space for you, and that we are also going to explore that space together. The objective is not to just say one of us arrived at the table with the right answer and what we need to figure out is which one, but rather each of us arrived at the table with something really valuable that's going to get us towards the answer. And we have this common goal of figuring out what is it that each of us is seeing that's valuable? And furthermore, how do those things fit together? How are we going to build the next iteration of this that neither of us occurred to neither of us beforehand? And how are we going to do that together at this table? I think that's really important. And I would say there's sort of two things that make people be in a hurry. One is, and I hear this all the time, why would I waste my time listening to these idiots when they will never convince me that, for example, climate change is not man-made? I've read the science. I've studied this for decades. Climate change is man-made, and therefore I am never going to talk to a climate denier because there is nothing they could possibly tell me. The underlying assumption there is that the only purpose of a conversation is to litigate whether climate change is man-made or not. Whereas you could imagine saying, well, look, we all have to like 
live in one country and on one planet and set policy together. So maybe we will not reach agreement on whether it's man-made or not, but could we reach agreement on what we should do given my concerns and your concerns and the fact that we are all part of one community. Or maybe you'll realize that this person who you have sort of classified as a climate denier isn't really debating the science of climate change, but simply has other priorities. A person might say, look, climate change is a problem, but it's like a very down the road problem where there's people in my community who have no jobs right now. And so I'm concerned about that. And then we'll deal with your climate change thing 30 years later. It could be that you don't even understand what the disagreement is about. That piece of this is a waste of time because I know and they don't know. And so I don't have to listen to them is one reason that people rush. The other reason that people rush is because they expect the entire experience to be really emotionally aversive. You are basically going to have this very unpleasant conversation and therefore you want to have it as quickly as possible and like get the heck out of there. Um, Tear off the band-aid. Right. I've done research with Charlie Dorison and Todd Rogers, who's my colleague here at the Kennedy School, where we basically show that people have these really negative expectations about listening to opposing views. But when you make them listen, they're like, well, that wasn't fun, but it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. So there's just this feeling of like, oh, I don't want to listen to crazy people. It's going to make me really uncomfortable. It's not going to make you that uncomfortable. And they're probably not that crazy. I'll remember that the next time Thanksgiving dinner comes around. Okay, before we wrap up, I want to ask you for some really, really practical advice. For anyone who's been listening to this conversation and just saying like, yes, yes, a thousand times yes, this so accurately describes all of the problems with the way that I sit down at tables to talk with people. For that person, what's the most important thing that they can start doing Monday morning to just get some traction and get some momentum going on this? I think a really nice way to summarize a lot of the ideas that we have discussed is a set of tools that comes from our research on conversational receptiveness. And conversational receptiveness is basically the words and phrases that you can use to make the other person feel like you're really engaged with their point of view, even as you are trying to express your own perspective. Conversational receptiveness is something that we developed using natural language processing. So there's like an algorithm that has come up with words and phrases that you can say. And it's a long list, but we boil down the long list to a cute acronym. And so the cute acronym is I hear you. And the only piece you need is the hear. Hear, right? Four letters. H stands for hedging your claims. So instead of saying anti-vaxxers always blah, 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 you say sometimes people who are vaccine hesitant might blah, 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 right? So you've got a sometimes and a might. So you're kind of hedging. The E in here stands for emphasizing agreement. So it's basically finding an area of common ground to start with. We are all very concerned with the global situation right now. We all want to live in a country where people feel respected. I agree with you that health decision-making can be really complicated. That A stands for acknowledgement. So this is the thing we're talking about of restating the other person's perspective. And it doesn't have to be sort of a full speech. It can be something like, I understand that blah, blah, blah. Or you seem to think that X, Y, Z, right? So it's 
showing with your words that you heard the other person. And the R is reframing to the positive. You can make the exact same statement in positive terms versus negative terms. So instead of saying things like, I hated when people bring politics into the workplace, you can say something like, I really appreciated when we stick to our work when we are at work. So here, hedging, emphasizing agreement, acknowledging the other perspective and reframing to the positive. And you can write those things down and tape them to your screen and just like sprinkle them into every email you send and life will become a little easier. And on the topic of patience, it seems that uh, sprinkling those into instant messaging conversations is probably an additional barrier, right? So if you're in a very rapid fire environment like Slack or something like this, it can be harder to internalize those processes. The more that you can choose your venue to select for patients, you're probably putting yourself in a better position in terms of working productively through those disagreements. Yes, that's absolutely right. And, you know, and I would add to that, that there are platforms that intentionally constrain how much you can say, right? So Twitter being the sort of paradigmatic example. And then there are platforms where we have developed a culture of being rapid fire. So there's nothing about Slack that prevents me from writing a complete sentence. It's just we choose not to write complete sentences. And so it's good to be sort of conscious of those choices you're making. And when you're facing disagreement, that's the time to slow it down, right? If you are sort of agreeing with everybody, then send them a smiley face and click send and you don't have to use any words. But if it starts feeling like there's an issue, that's the time to back off in terms of the rapid fire piece and think, okay, can I type a little extra to prevent this from really exploding into a screaming match in Slack? Okay, Julia, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much. This advice is really practical, really actionable, and uh, very meaty. Thank you for the research that you're doing and for sharing this with us today. Thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Decision Corner. For a transcript of this conversation and for other related content, head on over to our website, thedecisionlab.com. While you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter and learn about our consulting services. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll see you back here soon.